Heavenly Father, we recognise this morning that you are our portion, that apart from you we have nothing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as we come and examine your word together. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to obey your word, that we would see here that we have the words of the living God and we are to be obedient. We are to listen and put them into practice. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do so this morning. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning I thought we would take a break uh, from, well, I'd finished Amos, my sermon series in Amos last week, and next week I will be away, and then the week after it'll be Christmas Day, and so rather than return to my series in John's Gospel and then have it broken up by a couple of weeks away, I thought we should just do one psalm, and I looked through the psalms, uh, not the whole book, but I was looking at different psalms, and particularly one that might be helpful for us as we come into the Christmas period, and so I, I latched onto Psalm. 45, which is a psalm that is quite enjoyable to read because it is about a wedding, and not just any wedding, a royal wedding. And people like weddings, and people really like royal weddings. Uh, to get into the spirit of the moment, I even watched uh, some clips from the last two royal weddings that have been uh, witnessed by our country, uh, Prince Harry and Prince William. I hadn't actually seen any footage. I'd seen some photos when it happened, but that was about the limit of it. But I thought, I'll, I'll watch how a royal wedding is undertaken today in light of reading about this royal wedding that is happening here in Psalm 45. And that is what is being given to us, is this, the psalmist has taken up, he says, a noble theme in verse 1. His heart is stirred by this noble theme. And what is that? It's the wedding of the king with his bride. And he goes through and speaks about this wedding, or the preparations for it, and who is getting married. Firstly, he speaks about the wonder of the king. He is exalting and praising the king in the first verses of this psalm. He speaks about the king being the most excellent of men there in verse 2. Uh, it could also be translated as beautiful or handsome would be, of course, what you usually use for a male, that he's handsome, not so much beautiful, but handsome. And he is the most excellent of men. And why is he so excellent? Well, in verse 2, it tells us that his lips are wonderful. Not just that they're nice and full and might be nice to kiss, but his lips have been anointed with grace, that he speaks graciously. He's a nice king and he has been blessed by God forever. And then it doesn't just speak about his lips there. It goes on in verse 3 and following to talk about his power, his strength. Uh, it talks about his sword uh, being taken up and how he rides forth victoriously in verse 4. And then it goes on to speak about his triumphing over his enemies in verse 5. And all of this is done, all his fighting, all his power, all the graciousness of his lips is used with justice and righteousness. We see that in verse 6. It says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So he's taken quite some time here to look at the king and look at how wonderful he is, that he has lovely lips, he has strong power, and he rules with righteousness and justice. And then it starts to get a bit closer to the actual occasion of the wedding as well, speaking about uh, how he is dressed, or maybe he dresses like this all the time as he is the king. In verse 8 it says, All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. 
He smells good, this king, uh, particularly on his way to the wedding. And it doesn't just speak about his robes, but it speaks about his other property, particularly his palace there in verse 8. He has a palace adorned with ivory, and around his palace he has much music. I think we take music for granted these days because it's as simple as putting a CD into a CD player or Clicking an iPod um, is even easier these days. But music uh, wasn't something that you heard regularly uh, around the place unless you had people there to strum away on strings for you. And so here the king is showing his, his majesty, his wealth, by the fact that he has stringed music to make him glad. And so it goes on about this king. But then it doesn't just stop with the king. What do you need at a, a wedding, and particularly at a royal wedding? You need a bride. And so who is this bride that is getting married? Well, she is first mentioned for us in verse 9. Look with me, Psalm 45, verse 9. It says, Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. And then it goes on to speak about this royal bride who's there in gold. It says in verse 10 that she should listen and consider and give ear to the psalmist about forgetting her people and her father's house. You're leaving them behind. What's your place now? Well, your place is to be um, for the king to be enthralled by your beauty there in verse 11 and to honour him for he is your Lord. Yes, you used to honour your father, but now you've got a new Lord and that is your king, your groom. And he is actually enthralled by the beauty of this bride. And she is honoured by others. It says in verse 12, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift and men of wealth will seek her favour, that people will want her favour. And then it goes on to speak about her wedding gown, which is what everybody's interested in, in, in at a wedding, isn't it? What's the bride's dress like? Well, verse 13, all glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions, her bridesmaids, follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness and they enter the palace of the king. And so sadly, uh, that is uh, where the view of the public is lost. Uh, you see this, uh, these days we have video cameras, but in the past, very few people got to see the royal weddings actually take place. You might see the bride coming along and going in. You might see the king himself going in, but the actual wedding itself was only seen by a privileged few, and that is where the psalm there ends. And, it's well, it speaks a bit more about the prosperity of the new family unit and the princes that will come. And so here we see this wonderful psalm is given to us of a wedding and a royal wedding as such. So who is this being spoken of? Which king and which bride is this psalm about? Well, no doubt it was about one of the kings of Israel or Judah um, at some point in Israelite history, but we really have no idea which one it was about. Some people conjecture that it might have been Solomon, uh, but we really have no idea who it is that is being married originally when this psalm was written. But we do know, as we look to the greatest groom that history has ever known, that it really is fulfilled perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is, of course, a king. And he's not just any king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And when we look at the description given of this groom here in Psalm 45, we see that it is perfectly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, that no king has ever lived who fulfills this psalm so perfectly as the Lord Jesus Christ does. How was the king described? Well, it said that his lips had been anointed with grace. 
course, Jesus always spoke with gracious lips. He is one who is full of grace. And of course, he is blessed forever by the Lord, as it says there in verse 2. He also has great strength. It spoke quite strongly there about the strength of this king. And of course, Jesus, as the king of kings and lord of lords, he reigns over all and he has the strength to reign over all. He's a perfect fulfillment of this psalm as it speaks about the king's power and his triumph over his enemies. But also, as we look at how the king is described there, about his justice and his righteousness and his hatred of wickedness, who perfectly fulfills that? Well, it's only the Lord Jesus Christ. No king has ever ruled justly with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness. But the Lord Jesus Christ has. He is the one who reigns with that perfect righteousness, who loves righteousness that comes from the Lord. And as we look at the further description of the king there in verse um, in Psalm 45, in verse 8, it talks about his robes. Uh, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's pictures of him in the Bible, of him being dressed in dazzling white, uh, at his transfiguration and also uh, as in the visions of John uh, in Revelation. We see that the king of kings is indeed dressed well and it says there that he smells uh, of great fragrance a fragrance of myrrh and aloes and cassia of course the lord jesus does smell heavenly because he is from heaven himself and we see in verse 8 as well that it spoke about the king having great music around him now jesus when he was on earth he didn't always have people singing to him but we know that where he is now in heaven itself there are choirs that are heavenly singing around him. His choirs sing like angels. Why? Because they are angels. They are singing around him as he reigns on his throne. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this psalm. He is a king and he is described in these ways in the Bible. And in fact, this psalm is taken up in Hebrews chapter 1 to describe Jesus as a, a proof text. So verses 7 and in verse 7 is uh, verse 6 and 7 are taken up in Hebrews chapter 1 to refer to Jesus himself. So we have scriptural warrant then to interpret this psalm as being about the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, if this is about Jesus, who is Christ's bride? Who is this bride who is described in Psalm 45? Well, we know from the New Testament that the bride of Christ is his people. It is those who believe in Jesus Christ. They actually are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this king who's being described here is marrying the church. Now, where in the Bible does this actually tell us that God could be so enthralled by his people that he wishes to marry them? Marriage is the most special of all relationships that we have in this world. Why would God say this? Is it really true that Christ has married the church, that he sees us as his bride. After all, it says in verse, uh, verse 11 that the king is enthralled by your beauty. Could that really be said of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church, that he's enthralled by us? Well, the Bible does tell us again and again that Christ loves us and is enthralled with us. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied about again and again that he would marry his church and that he would delight in her. For example, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great 
delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. You see there a prophecy about the way that the Lord delights in his people. He is enthralled with our beauty. But then, of course, we see the love of Christ has come again and again in the pages of the scriptures and is shown to us, and particularly in the New Testament, his love for his bride is shown there, that he is enthralled with us by his actions. His first action in the New Testament is, of course, coming in the flesh, taking on a human body. He loves us so much that the Son of God would come and take on human flesh. At the first Christmas, we understand that God himself came and dwelt amongst us it's like a prearranged marriage was being formed there at, as he's there in that manger. That is actually the new king and a marriage has begun with him and his bride. Yes, he has to grow up first, but he is like the infant king that has been born and it's already arranged who he will marry one day, even though he hasn't grown up yet. And then he stayed on this earth showing us how much he loves us, how much he loves his bride, and dwelt on this earth and so that we could get to know him better. He didn't just come and then leave very quickly. No, he lived on this earth and people recorded information about our groom and how he lived. When we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're like uh, diaries that people have written about our groom and how he lived while he was here on earth so that we can know his love for us as our groom, and then he didn't just live on this earth, but he also then died. He died as one who loves us. Now we might think, oh, well, that means that he's gone now and we have no access to the groom. It's like this great tragedy, this wedding that is arranged, but then the king, he he dies before he can marry his bride. But we then understand in the Bible that he rose again. He came back to life, much to the surprise of his bride at the time, the church. They were delighted and glad when they saw him. They couldn't quite believe it at first. Some of them doubted that it was actually true, but he was back to life. Their groom. And then he left. It turns out that he came for a time. He died. Why did he die? Well, it was to pay the dowry for us. Whenever someone gets married, well, they did did so in the past, there would be a price to be paid by the groom for the privilege of taking away the bride. What was the price that Jesus had to pay in order to marry us? Well, he had to die the death that we deserve. He couldn't just marry us because we are a vile, horrible people. And so to pay for us, he had to pay with his life. In the Old Testament, we see dowries being paid at different times, and particularly uh, a classic example is Jacob. Uh, also known as Israel. He wanted to marry Rachel. What did he have to do? Had to work for seven years in order to get her. And then it turns out he had to work for another seven years in order to get her. He had to work for a full 14 years. But in comparison to Jesus Christ, he didn't pay that much because Jesus paid with his own life. But then he left. So we're asking the question, has he really married his church? Is he really interested in us? Is he really our groom? Are we really his bride when he has gone away? Well, he's come and he's inaugurated the marriage, but he has left, but he hasn't left without any sort of contact with us. No, he has sent us letters. He sent us love letters in the scriptures that we have before us. He does have contact with us and we have contact with him. We can speak to him and he has promised that he will return in his letters. For example, in that passage that we had read for us before from Revelation 21, where it talks about the bride coming down from heaven to meet her groom, that is a love letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, our groom, reminding us that he hasn't gone away altogether, 
but he is intending to return to us. And he even sends his spirit to live within us now and so we can feel his presence. We know the groom is with us. Yes, we can't see him physically, but we know he is here with us spiritually and is intending to come back one day and be with us. And he sends us love tokens. He sends us gifts all the time. Each blessing that we receive from God is a love token from our groom, reminding us that one day he will come and take us to be with him. So yes, the Bible tells us that it is indeed true that Christ's bride is his church, are his people. Those who trust in him belong to him and he is enthralled by our beauty. But you say, but how can that be? How can he actually love us? How can he be enthralled by us? Doesn't he know who we are, that we're a sinful, wicked people? that we have original sin inherited from Adam and Eve, our first parents, that pollutes us? Doesn't he understand that we commit actual sin, that we rebel against him in thought, word, and deed, regularly through our lives? How can he actually love us? How can he be attracted to us? Christians should be like those girls who can't understand why a guy the guy that likes her actually likes her. I'm reading a novel to Jill at the moment and there's a girl like that in the story. The, the man is always described in these glowing terms and his, his physique and his, his love and his passion. Uh, he's just wonderful and his might and his power. The girl's always uh, making, it's told from her perspective, always making much of him. But then she talks about herself and says, how I must look standing next to him. And people must be looking at me and going, what's she doing with him? What's he doing with her? He's so out of her league that they just can't understand why he is there with her. And that is the way that we should feel. As Christians, we should wonder, why is he enthralled with our beauty? Doesn't he know how poor, wretched, blind and pitiful we actually are? Why does he pay any attention to us? Why does he want to marry us? Particularly when we put ourselves next to him. He smells wonderful. He smells of myrrh and aloes and cassia. He smells heavenly. Whereas we, because of our sin, when we stand next to him, we smell like we crawled out of a sewer. Why would he be interested in us? Why would he want to marry us? Well, the answer to that question is difficult to answer because, to begin with, we don't know why he chooses his people to belong to him. Our election as his bride is unconditional. There's nothing that he looks at with those who haven't been Christians and then become Christians. He doesn't look at them and see that there's something there that's of value and then he says, I want that person because they will be an asset in my kingdom. No, it's unconditional. There's nothing about us when God first chooses us to belong to him, to be his bride. But we do understand that once he makes us part of our, uh, his bride, he does give us something that is of great value. He does give us a makeover. He does make us beautiful by his own actions. How, what am I speaking about? Well, he takes us and gives us clothes to wear, he washes us, cleanses us, and makes us better looking than we've ever been before. Yes, we smell like we crawled out of a sewer, but then Jesus takes us and transforms us. He gives us a proper makeover. 
I mean, even the prettiest of brides, even if it's a great model who's getting married, she's not ready to get in front of the cameras at the wedding when she rolls out of bed that morning. She needs a coffee, if she's anything like me, uh, to wake herself up a bit. She needs to have a wash. She needs to put on some perfume and put on her makeup. And she needs to put on her pretty dress. And then she's ready for the cameras, for all her friends and family to take photos of her at her prettiest. It's the same with us as the bride of Christ. Yes, we start off like we just rolled out of bed in the morning. But then he chooses us, takes us, washes us, cleanses us, and makes us beautiful. Ephesians 5 speaks of that. Ephesians chapter 5, which is at the end there, is all about uh, wives relating to their husbands and husbands relating to their wives. But it speaks about how we are to model our marriages on that great marriage between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is what we are now that Christ has had his way with us, now that he's taken us and given us a makeover. We are without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. And so it's not surprising that he is enthralled with us now, now that he has changed us and transformed us. By his blood, by his word, he has washed us and changed us so that we are far better now that he has given us that makeover. And so if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I encourage you to understand what you are actually like if you are outside of Christ that you are filthy, you are wretched, you are blind, you are pitiful, you are a poor person in this world. I encourage you, ask Christ to wash you, cleanse you, and take you to be his bride, that he will be part, that you will be part of his bride now and all eternity. So he's enthralled by our beauty once he's given us the makeover. But it's not just the righteousness that he imputes to our account that clothes us now so that we look better, He also strengthens us day by day so that we look better as brides as well, that our prettiness is more natural than it ever was before. We see that with brides, once they get into their dress, they're very careful, and once they've got their makeup on, they're very careful not to put any stains upon themselves. I spoke to my wife this week about this to just clarify. I did some sermon research by picking her brains about this. Girls have a bit of an advantage in this respect, but apparently girls are very careful once they've got the makeup on, once they've got their dress on, that they don't go and eat a bag of oranges uh, that would spill juice all over themselves. And they're very careful, apparently, not to cry, tears of joy, hopefully not tears of sadness, Um, so that their mascara and their makeup doesn't run. They're very careful that now that they've been cleansed and washed and made pretty for the wedding, they're very careful to keep it that way. And that's what Jesus does for us as well. He strengthens us so that we do right now rather than wrong. He doesn't just put his righteousness to our account and then let us run our lives the way we see best which is usually against his will altogether. No, he strengthens us. The Apostle Paul prays in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts. May Christ encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Jesus is a groom who doesn't just give us a nice dress, doesn't just give us a nice cleansing and some makeup and some fragrance to wear. 
No, he also strengthens us so that we do good works, that we have the strength for every good deed and word. So why would Jesus marry us? Well, it's because he's cleansed us. We don't know in the beginning. He takes us in our filthy state, but then we know he is enthralled by our beauty once he cleanses us, washes us, and then strengthens us so that we do what is right, so that we live the life that he has given us. And we must never forget this. We must never forget that Christ actually now craves us who believe with the most intimate of loves, that Jesus really is enthralled with our beauty. Do you really understand that? That Jesus loves you with the greatest love we can know. He is enthralled with you. He craves you. That word in verse 11, it says the king is enthralled by your beauty. Uh, That word in Hebrew, it's used uh, not that many times in the Bible, but one place it's used is where the King David himself, he he wants some water from Bethlehem, uh, and it's taken over by the enemy, and Bethlehem is his hometown. He says, oh, that I could have water from that well in Bethlehem, and some of his mighty men break through and get it, and then he's like horror-struck that people risk their lives to get him a drink of water from a particular well. But that's the word that's used there. He craves water. He's enthralled with that water. He wants it. He desires it so much. That is the desire that Jesus Christ has for us. And we have to try and remember this. This is why I like movies, I think, and books which speak about a girl finding an immensely rich husband because it reminds me of my relationship with Jesus Christ. It could be uh, the older story of Pride and Prejudice, which is indeed one of my favourites, where, of course, uh, Elizabeth uh, Bennet marries Darcy and she can't believe his wealth at times uh, that she sees. And then, or a more recent one that may be more known to you if you don't read Jane Austen, but there was a movie that came out, Crazy Rich Asians, uh, recently, which speaks about a young girl and she suddenly realises that her boyfriend is incredibly wealthy. And we love these stories, I think, because it's really written on our hearts that this is the great love story known to man, is that we, in all our pitiful state, we actually have the King of Kings love us. He desires us. He wants us. Just like Mr. Darcy wanted poor little Elizabeth Bennet and that crazy rich Asian wanted the poorer Asian in the movie. He loves us. He wants us. And we should never get over the fact that we don't deserve his love. What's he doing with someone like us? But he is. And so we should be like those girls in those movies and books that giggle about this great man and who he is, giggle about how much money he has. They look at his building, his palace, and go, wow, and he's actually mine. And so this is all mine technically as well. They giggle about how much respect he has shown as people bow down to him or show respect to him in lots of different ways. We giggle like them and think, this is Jesus Christ. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who has shown all respect in heaven. And he is our husband. And so people respect us too. Even angels long to look into these things, 1 Peter says. They can't believe what someone like him is doing with someone like her, which is us. And the girl will giggle at the love that that man has. You see this with 
Elizabeth Bennett and Mr Darcy, she can't quite believe... Well, she's got her own issues as well at first, but she is a little bit puzzled about the effect she can have on this great man. And that should be us, the effect that we can have on the King of Kings, that he would actually die for us, that he loves us that much, that he would take on the curse of sin for us. Look what he will do for us, and we should giggle about it, we should love it and laugh about it. Isn't it wonderful that someone like him would do something for, that, for filthy people like us? It's incredible. It makes us laugh. It's just unbelievable, really, that he would do that, that he loves us that much. He must really love us if he would do that. We should be stunned every day by the love of Jesus Christ for us as his bride. And so we should act like the lovesick brides that we are, believing that Christ's devotion is true. What do lovesick brides do? Well, They prize their groom's love letters, reading them over and over again. And we have a whole collection of them here, love letters from the Lord. We should prize them and read them over and over again. We should daydream about him. We call it Christian meditation. The bride thinks about her groom, thinks lovely thoughts about him. Isn't he so wonderful? Doesn't he have so much money? Doesn't he have so much power and respect? Doesn't he love me so much? He thinks about these things, and that's what we should be doing with Jesus Christ. We should be meditating upon him and thinking about his love for us, thinking about his power and his majesty and the respect that he has given and that he is ours. And brides will also call regularly their grooms, particularly in this day and age where they have got a phone or can send text messages, and that's what we should do with our groom. We should call upon him. How do we do that? It's in prayer. We can send him little love notes that are very quick ones. We can send him longer ones, more extended times of prayer that we spend with him. We can even sing songs to him. Sing songs to him about his majesty, his power, and his great love for us. We should spend so much time in prayer and singing and and this time of love for him that people actually start to think that our love is unhinged. That's what we think of brides when they're constantly ringing their groom. We think... I think you've actually got too much of an interest in this guy. Remember, he's just, he's just going to be your husband. He's not going to be everything to you. But Jesus is going to be everything to us. He should be everything to us even now. And we should be itching to leave this world to be with him. That's what a bride, once she's getting closer and closer to the wedding day, she, as long as she's not getting cold feet, she wants to be with him. She wants to leave her father's house. And we see that in verse 10 where it said, Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. That's what we should be like. We should be wanting to leave this world and be with our groom. And we should be loyal to him as well. If we are his bride... If we're lovesick brides, we should be loyal to him. And that's what the advice is that's given to her in verse 11. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your lord. We shouldn't be kissing other idols on the way to the wedding. Just like a bride doesn't kiss other men on the way to her wedding. No, she is loyal to him. And that's what we should be if we are the bride of Christ. And of course, we should rejoice in the many gifts that he sends us. As Lovesick brides, we should delight in every little token that he gives us. I know some girlfriends uh, can take gifts for granted. Of course he sends me roses, of course he sends me chocolates, I'm so special, of course he would do those things. 
And that's how our attitude as Christians sometimes we start to think, of course God should bless me. Of course God should give me everything that I desire. Rather than recognizing the good gifts that come from him are lovely tokens of his love for us. And we don't deserve them, but he sends them. And so they're a joy for us to receive. And then if we're lovesick brides, one of the last things that we can do, of course, is anticipate the joy we will feel in meeting our groom. And that's that joy that is spoken of in verse 15 of Psalm 45. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. Do you look forward to that day when you'll be led into the palace of the king, where the wedding will be finalized once and for all, that you are the bride of the king of kings for all of eternity? Are you anticipating that joy day by day? realizing you don't deserve to have the King of Kings love, but he does love you and he will return one day and take you to be with him. The bridegroom is at the door. The wedding day is almost upon us and we'll soon see our groom face to face and all our blemishes will be stripped away and we will be immaculate for all of eternity and he will continue to be enthralled by our beauty for all of eternity. Let's come before our God in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are indeed the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, our great groom. We thank you for your indescribable love for us as your bride. We confess that far too often we take your love for granted. We think that we should be your bride because we are so wonderful, but we are not, O Lord. It is only by your grace that we can have any beauty about us that would enthrall you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to marvel every day that such a one as you would love a people like us so much that you would marry us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.